Holy Father, we come before you as sinners who you have made whole. As people broken who you have repaired. As, as hearts lost that you have found. Father, I pray before we get going this morning that if there's anybody here who still feels a sinner, still feels lost, still still feels broken, Lord, that you would begin the process today of saving their heart, of drawing them to you and to the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Father, as we open up and go into these verses, I pray that you will give us insight. I pray, Father, for clarity, for a sharpness of mind, that we can stay with us and, and gather in all that you're providing, this, this literal harvest of Scripture today. Prepare our hearts even now, Lord, to accept these things, to understand, and to be soaked by them. And we rely on you, Holy Spirit, to do what my voice can't do, and what my words can't do. And that is to reach into our hearts and implant your word there. Your word that does not come back empty. Fill us up today, Father. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Verse by verse through Deuteronomy 32. And I'm going to give you several buzzwords. 11 or 12 words this morning. If you are a note taker, you can jot down for following through the passage. And the first word is saturation. Saturation. It was quite meaningful during the first hour because we were literally in a torrent of rain. It was so loud you could barely even hear anything in here. Just pounding down. It was awesome. And Moses begins this song. Remember, this is the song of Moses. He said all the teaching over 30 chapters, 31 chapters. Now he comes to chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. And the Lord says, write it down like a song. I want them to remember it like they would remember a song. To know these words and to get them under their skin and into their hearts. And so he begins the song with the following words. Verse 1, give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. Saturation. Saturation. The doctrine and teaching of this song begins with what what a gentle rain would do. Moses says this is how these words need to function in your life. They need to drip down like dew in the morning that covers the grass and then literally saturates the ground. Like a gentle spring rain. Not like a torrential flood. Not a heavy weight of judgment pounding down and washing you out. But a gentle rain covering gently, thoroughly soaking in. It reminds me of my favorite verse, Isaiah 55, verse 10, As the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And that's what God's word does. It distills like the dew. It saturates like a gentle rain. It gets in and soaks us and begins changing us in ways we don't even understand or know. As we are in the Word, as we are drenched by the Word of God, change happens. But understand something about this game. Application, biblical application, requires saturation. If you're just taking little nibbles here and there, you will not get the change that the Word can bring in you. People say, I'm not seeing or feeling the life change I'd hoped for. 
Bible study just ain't doing it for me. And I say, you're not saturated. You haven't gotten enough. There are those who say, I'm tired of Bible study. I want to move on to other things. You have not gotten enough of the Word in your life. Give it time. Let it soak in. Remember this, Moses was 80 years old before he went back to Egypt to lead the children of Israel out over their 40-year journey to the Promised Land. Joshua, who we're going to begin studying in just a couple of weeks into the book of Joshua, was 80 years old when he began the conquest of Canaan. And in those 80 years, Joshua, he was Moses' right-hand man for the 40 years in the wilderness where Moses went, Joshua went. When Moses was praying, Joshua was nearby. When Moses was in the camp, Joshua was in the camp, soaking up, listening to all the teachings, pouring over the scriptures, understanding what it was that God was preparing him to do. He was saturated by the time he was ready to go conquer. And part of the problem we have as Christians today is minimal saturation. As a matter of fact, we have more of a starvation of the Word. We're not in the Word enough. And we wonder why God isn't evoking the life change that we would like to have. You're not soaking it in. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Be in it. You cannot be in the Word too much. As a matter of fact, this whole song is going to end with Moses saying, It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. And the more time spent in the Bible pouring over the words of Scripture, the more you're saturated, the more I guarantee you His Word will not come back empty, but will change you and transform your life in ways you cannot even imagine. The Lord provides saturation for maturation. You want to be mature in the Lord, you need to be saturated by the Word. Second word for you this morning. Saturation is the first. Second is foundation. Verse 3 says, I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. And five times in this song of Moses, five times across chapter 32, He will sing of the rock. The rock. Who's the rock? It's Jesus. And not just allegorically speaking. How do we know it's the rock? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10.4, says they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. He is the rock. He is the cornerstone of our entire faith. Daphne walked in the door a few minutes ago. Having been a little late this morning, I was disappointed. Just got to let you know in front of everyone. <laughs> no, she was late because as she was heading out the door this morning, the Jehovah's Witnesses stopped by and wanted to have a little conversation. And Daphne asked them point blank, and I'm so glad you did this, is Jesus God? And they said, no. Because Jehovah's Witness does not teach Jesus as God, as deity. Christ is the rock. Without the rock, we got nothing to stand on, gang. We have no foundation. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds. And then he says this, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And we will come back to Jesus again and again and again and again here at the bridge as we teach through the Word because He is the foundation. And if you can't find Christ in Scripture, you're not looking. Because He's everywhere. He's the foundation of our very faith. In clear contrast to this, however, the solid rock foundation of Jesus are unfortunately the children of Israel. Verse 5. They have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? 
Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Moses says, you know, you're not even his kids. You're not his children. Of course, then he turns right around and he says, is he not your father? So which is it, Moses? Are they his children or are they not his children? What's the deal? What are you saying? In essence, Moses is singing, Israel, you are his children, but you've got a birth defect. That's the next word in your list. Deformation. The children of Israel are born of God and yet deformed. Defective. Now I can talk to you about what it's like to grow up with a birth defect. I had a cleft lip and a cleft palate. Some of you know that when I was born. Which means that the upper lip and palate are not grown together. My mom fed me out of an eyedropper for the first three months of my life. That was how I started out. And I remember as a young kid, especially early elementary school, where kids can be kind of brutal, I remember looking in the mirror at my face and kind of covering up my mouth and looking at my eyes and you know, go like this and, and wishing that I could just look like my dad when he was a kid. I saw pictures of my dad, and if you covered up the lower half of my face, the upper half of my face, my eyes and the shape of my face was almost exactly like him. And I wish that I could look like that. And that's what Moses is saying here to the children of Israel. He's saying, you don't look like your father. You're deformed. You have a defect. You're not like the father who bore you. And it's so important to understand this because God's desire for us from the very beginning was that we look like him. Do you recall this verse, Genesis 1.26? God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish and, and of the sea and the birds of the sky the cattle over all the earth over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth God created in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them but Mr. and Mrs. image of God were found to be defective that born with a deformity they didn't look like their father where he is faithful they were faithless. Where he is consistent, they're inconsistent. Where he is righteous, we are shameful. And what Israel needed, and what we need, is a surgeon. A great physician. When I was a, a kid, again, we found a surgeon in Southern California. His name was Dr. LeBlanc. This guy was phenomenal. And I will not forget the day when sitting in a Fiddler's 3 restaurant. It's an old restaurant chain way back when. Sitting in Fiddler's 3 with my mom and dad, a couple of ladies came up to us and looked at me and looked at my dad and said, You've got to be his son because you look so much alike. And as a kid, I just was like... Awesome. I still look a lot like my dad, by the way, more up here than anywhere else. <laughs> but that's what Jesus, our great surgeon, does for us. He begins to reform our image after the image of God the Father. So we can start to look like Him again in our behavior, in the way we treat each other, in the love we have in our lives, in the way we live. Paul said in Romans 8.29, For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Now you may think, that is so far away from where I am, I can't even begin to, to, to walk down that road. To look like Jesus? I'll never look like Jesus. Wrong! The Holy Spirit in your life wants to conform you to the image of Christ. Not to be you know, equal to Christ. No way that's ever going to happen. He's God, you're not. Get used to it. But to conform you after the pattern of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from His glory 
to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, we are being changed, transformed into the image of the Father. So deformation is not a problem where God is concerned. He's the master surgeon. He will correct the problem. Verse 7, reading on. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now we looked at this a little bit last week, but we get something that is absolutely amazing. And you've got to stick with me to catch, catch this. Look again at verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance... When he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according according to the number of the sons of Israel. Fourth word for you is correlation. Now I read this verse and I thought, there's got to be something to this. A correlation between the number of the sons of Israel and the nations. That's what Moses is singing, that God based the number of the nations on the number of the sons of Israel. How does that work? To find out, we've got to travel back 2,500 years from when Moses wrote this song. Back to Genesis chapter 10, which is called the Table of Nations. And we studied this three years ago now. The Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, it's a fascinating study to go through. It talks about Noah after the flood having three sons. Remember their names? Shem, Ham, and Casserole. No, Japheth. Yeah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the three sons of Noah. Now these three sons, they all had sons. Who had sons and so on and so forth until they began to spread out as nations all over the world. The Table of Nations is the most accurate genealogical listing we have in history. Bar none. People will talk about inconsistencies in the Bible, or the Bible's not legitimate or whatever, and yet they come to things like the Table of Nations, and it's staggering. Nothing comes close. Dr. William Albright, Near East scholar, and not a believer in the infallibility of the Scripture, said the following, Genesis 10 stands absolutely alone in ancient literature. Without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework, the Table of Nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. But here's what's even more amazing about the Table of Nations. It lists 70 people groups. 70 specifically. 30 from Ham, 26 from Shem, 14 from Japheth, equaling 70. What does that have to do with Israel? Well, you Bible students probably know where I'm going with this. Genesis chapter 46, verse 7 tells us that when Jacob and his family, Israel and his sons, moved down to Egypt, the number of them moving down to Egypt was 70. 70 people. Deuteronomy 10, 22 says your fathers went down to Egypt. 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the heaven. Moses is singing about here in verse 8 a divine correlation. He's saying back in Noah's day, just after Noah, 70 nations spread out on the earth. And the Lord chose that specifically. He designed it to be 70 nations. Based on what? Based on the children of Israel later on. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that's a little mind-bending. Hang on. You're telling me that the nation spread out long before the children of Jacob, but God used the children of Jacob as the number for the nations. Exactly. That's what makes it divine. 
God knew. He foreknew. He saw this all coming. And as he knew there would be 70 in the children of Israel, he said, that's going to be the number of the nation. Why would God do something like that? Is he just messing around with us? Absolutely not. Word number five, authorization. Authorization. He is authorizing himself as the source writer of all history. God is showing us in this picture and so many others, especially in the Old Testament, He's showing us, hey, I authored the whole thing. I knew what was coming before it happened. And so I set it up so that you could see that. It's the extraterrestrial, and and pardon me for using that phrase for God, but it's true, isn't it? He is other-earthly. He is extraterrestrial. We are terrestrial. And the extraterrestrial is simply writing to the terrestrial so we can understand the extraterrestrial. You get that? The heavenly is text messaging the earthly. How's that? Okay. Second Peter chapter one verse nineteen. Peter says we have the prophetic word made more sure. So that's what prophecy is all about. It's so that we can know that this book was written by God. That this book was authored by God. In fact, that all history was authored by God. Peter says, pay attention to the prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And by the way, the number 70 is peculiar to Israel throughout Scripture. Number 70, Israel was led by 70 elders in the days of Moses. Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 and 25. Later, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, would number 70. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 11. Jerusalem fell in A.D. 70, approximately 70 years after Messiah was born into the world, Matthew 24, verse 2. And Daniel was giving an entire mind-blowing prophetic outline for the rest of the history of Israel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, and it's called the famous 70 weeks of Daniel, or the 70 sevens. God attaches this number 70 to Israel early on, but even before Israel, he used that number to determine the nations of the earth. Fantastic, amazing, divine, awesome. Why would he do this with Israel? Because Israel, verse 9, is his portion. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Now last week we read these verses. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest. Remember little Edgar Eagle we talked about last week. An eagle stirs up its nest. Mommy Eagle comes in and knocks Edgar out and does it time and time again until Edgar learns how to fly. But Mama Eagle doesn't let Edgar die on the rocks below. As the verse tells us, and eagles do this, they will hover over their young, spread his wings and catch them and carry him on his pinions. The Lord alone guided Israel and there was no foreign God with him. And in the end of it all, little Edgar gets his wings. He is able to fly. He learns how to fly because life, again as we talked about last Sunday, life is flight training. If you're knocked out of the nest, if you're uncomfortable, if you're struggling, if you're striving, if you're experiencing trouble and turmoil in your life, God is not going to let you hit the rocks, but He is going to let you struggle because He wants you to have faith. He wants you to have faith like wings, a faith that mounts up like the wings of an eagle. Verse 13 tells us He made Him ride on the high places of the earth. God's designed for Israel. I'm going to knock you out of the nest, but I'm going to make you ride and fly high. And that's His desire for you and for me. To fly on the high places of the earth. Verse 13 going on. And He ate the produce of the field. He made Him suck honey from the rock. 
and oil from the flinty rock, curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats and the finest of wheat and the blood of grapes. You drank wine and and those tasty yams with the marshmallows on top and turkey and stuffing and all the good stuff that we're looking forward to this week. And we're going to talk about this more next Sunday in relationship to our, our feasting, our indulgence, our feeding frenzy. But verse 15 he goes on and says, But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. And then, and you might circle the word then, because it's a critical word. Then he forsook God who made him, and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him, that is the Lord, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not know. You neglected the rock who begot you, and forgot the God who gave you birth. When did Israel do this when they were fat and sleek and thick and comfortable and safe in the land you see until that time when they were struggling in the wilderness they only had the Lord to lean on they didn't have anyone else if they were thirsty they had to cry out to God so he'd give them water from the rock if they were hungry they had to cry out to God and he'd bring the quail or the manna if they were afraid, they had to cry out to God, and He protected them. But they get into the promised land, and like so many of us, sit back after the big meal, relax and start to doze off, and we don't need anything anymore. We don't have care in the world. What do I truly need God for? I'm doing just fine. He calls them, interestingly, in verse 15, Jeshurun. Jeshurun, you'll see from time to time, it's just another, it's a nickname for Israel. It's an interesting nickname because it means upright ones, and they were not. They were downright lame. He calls them, though, the upright ones. Why? Because that's how God wants them to be. He often will do that, call things to be that are not. He will call us in our lives to be what we are not. He'll call you holy. Are you holy? Can anyone among us truly claim to be holy? And yet we are. We are. Because of the Lord God, we are holy. So there's an interesting contrast here. The preceding verses, their comfort in in the latter verses, that's where they forsook God. And I just want to encourage you, again, we're going to talk more about this next week, but as Thanksgiving approaches, as that day approaches this week, where our whole country feeds... Would you stop and remember the rock? Focus on, think about the rock. Verse 19. The Lord saw this and He spurned them because of the provocation of His sons and daughters. Then He said, I will will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation. Sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. Watch this. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Who is the foolish nation? Look around. It's us. We're the foolish nation. We're the Gentiles. We're the people who are not a people. We're those who do not have understanding. And God says, you know what, Israel? You've rebelled against me. I'm going to make you jealous. 
I'm going to draw in a whole new people. And you're going to feel cast out. And you're going to look at this people and you're going to say, what's the deal with them? How dare they call our God their God? He's our God. He led us out of Egypt. We had that relationship with Him. And that's the whole intention of the Lord. Romans chapter 10 verse 19. Paul says, I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, and then Paul quotes this song, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's you and me. So few of us actually sought him. Oh, we think we did. Yeah, I really chased after the Lord. When I found him, well, I just became a Christian. No, you didn't. God drew you to him. You would not be a believer today if he hadn't chosen to draw you in. Jesus tells us that very clearly. No one comes to me unless the Father draws them. And so he goes on and says, As for Israel, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Word number six in our list, provocation. Provocation. Do you realize, and this is just so classic with God, you and I as a people are used by the Lord to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's part of the deal. And you might not like the sound of that. You might say, wait a minute, I don't know if I like being used. God's just using me to get back to Israel? Just using me? Hey, His use of you resulted in your salvation. So praise the Lord for that. I am being used by the Lord. It's interesting, even today, when you go to Israel, there's a sense among the Jewish people, the tour guides and whatnot, there's a sense among them of just wondering what is up with these evangelical Christians. Why would they come here? Why wouldn't they make a journey here to this place? And, and they, they, they're just so into everything, and they're so respectful of Judaism, and, and they claim this Jesus is God, and it just drives them nuts. It makes them jealous exactly what God intended. Because a jealous lover wants to get back with the lover they were with. And that's what God desires for Israel. Paul says in Romans 11.11, They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Why? So salvation will come right back to the Jews. And that's the master plan. And it's awesome. We are the foolish nation, but foolish people. We are also favored and blessed and loved by the Lord God. Amen? Amen. Deuteronomy 32.22 For a fire is kindled... In my anger. Now we're going to come, by the way, to a few theological truths here that are hard to sit with. Watch this. A fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap misfortunes on them. I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague. And the word plague there is burning hot coals. This, I believe, is a prophetic indication of the Holocaust where the Jewish people were truly consumed by burning hot coals in the ovens of Auschwitz. And the Lord's not saying it was Hitler who does it. And this is what, walk with me carefully here. He's saying, I did it. I'm the one. I put Israel through this. Hang with me. That's number seven, conflagration. Conflagration. That Hebrew word for plague there, again, it's reshef, a live coal or a burning heat. 
Verse 24 going on says, They will be wasted by famine, consumed by plague, and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send on them. The venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror both young men and virgins. The nursling with the man of gray hair. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men. Had I not feared the provocation by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge. That they would say our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done all this. Now this blows me away. Number eight in your listening is consternation. The Lord is expressing frustration here. The Almighty God is in a place of consternation. Literally you could say between a rock and a hard place. Because on the one hand, He is the lover jilted by Israel. And as any lover who's ever been jilted by someone else knows, the first thing you want to do is say, I've had enough of you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I want you out of my life. I want no memory of you. And that's what God is expressing here. He is so hurt by the rebellion of Israel. I want nothing to do with you. And he says, but if I have nothing to do with you, on the one hand, on the other hand, the nations all around are going to say, see, we overcame, which is not true either. What do I do? God between a rock and a hard place at least parenthetically it's a difficult place to consider the Lord to be his broken heart would do away with the people but to do so would cast dispersion on his goodness his holiness his perfection now you might hear me and say well, wait a minute that sounds like God is concerned with what people think about him are you telling me that God cares what people think about him absolutely he cares because it's what you think about God that determines whether or not you're going to be saved. It's what man determines or decides about God that yields or allows salvation to happen. Jesus was with the boys in Caesarea Philippi and he turns to them and he goes, Guys, who do you say that I am? He's the only God in history who has asked his people, What do you think of me? Who do you say that I am? What do you believe about me? Because what we believe about him is absolutely critical. And Peter pipes up with, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Woohoo! And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this one out on your own, Pete. But my Father in heaven showed this to you. What you think about God does matter. And he does care about it because if you believe Jesus to be God in the flesh, you have eternal life. And without that, you don't. It's that black and white. Verse 28 going on. For they are a nation lacking in counsel. There's no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. And I echo those comments. In fact, we all should. Would that people would think about where they're headed. Would that people would consider their future. The word in the Hebrew there, you've heard it before. It's akarif, their latter end. And Moses is saying, would that the, the Israelites just consider where they're headed, where they're going, what's coming. This is what the Bible does for us. It's why the whole book ends with the revelation so we can see where we're going. So we can know ahead of time what's coming. Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 2, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, you say there will be a storm today because the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times? There are people firing up their generators in Oak Harbor today just worried about whether the wind of this current storm is going to knock out more power because they're discerning the seasons. They're discerning the weather. 
Can we not discern the signs of the times and know that His coming is imminent? And know that He is close. And live toward that day. The devil focuses on the present. The devil wants you to be concerned about life right now, today. Don't concern yourself with the future. It's immediate pleasure. Right now. The Lord reveals the latter end of the story because He wants you to look ahead and discern and consider and live your life for that day, not just for this day. Rich Mullins had a song out that he wrote years ago. I love this line. I've shared it before. Live like you'll die tomorrow. Die knowing you'll live forever. Great line. And we know what's coming. Isaiah 66 verse 22 says, Just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. He's talking to Israel. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me. This is ordained. This is going to happen. Embrace it, Israel. Be my people. Follow me. Love me. Give your lives to me because I have a destiny for you that's awesome. And the same is true, brothers and sisters, for all Christians. Revelation 22.14 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Is there anyone here who does not want to enter into the gates and see the great city? No one. Good. And we're on the right path. That's the latter end of the story. That's where we're going. That's the promise of the Father. Read on verse 30. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up. Again, Moses is singing God is taking full responsibility to everything that happened to Israel. It wasn't the hand of the nations. It was my hand, declares the Lord. Verse 30 is interesting because the only reason Israel has been on the run and is even on the run today pressed in from all sides is because God, the true rock, allowed it to happen and even brought it about. Remember, this song is a song to teach the people that in the latter days they would go back and sing it and realize what has happened. Verse 31. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah, and their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of cobras. Number nine in your listing of words there. If you missed number eight, it was revelation. Number nine is evaluation. Evaluation. Moses is calling the people of Israel, and I think you and me by extension, to do an evaluation. An evaluation of what? Of two options, two rocks. There's the rock who is Christ, that solid foundation. And there's another rock that you can consider if you want. What does their rock do? Well, their rock um, is the vine of Sodom and the fields of Gomorrah and the poison, poisonous grapes and bitter clusters and venom of serpents, serpents and deadly poison. That's what their rock produces. That's what the rock idols of the world have to offer. Immediate pleasures. And wanton sensualities and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the immediacy, hedonism. And their rock, the Lord says, is poison, bitterness, and venom. And you want to test this out, look at the literal rock idols of America. Have you seen Billy Joel lately? He's not just a piano man anymore. He's the drunk in the bar. Have you seen Axl Rose? Those of you Guns N' Roses fans from the, from the 90s. Have you seen him lately? Hideous. <laughs> How about Keith Richards? 
<laughs> this is what the life of, of the rock that the world offers and brings about. And here's some celeb reality for you, John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And everything else that the world tries to show us or that Satan calls us to, it's a lie. It's a lie. And we can even watch over time the end result. I watched the child stars of yesterday. Today they're just trashed. I look at five years ago, Britney Spears. Five years back was on top of the world. She was the, 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 the pop idol princess ever. She just couldn't she couldn't touch anything without it turning to gold. How's she doing today? You look in the in the headlines and it's all a joke. And that's what the world does. And I feel sorry for her and anyone else who gets in that situation. Lindsay Lohan. She was so cute in the parent trap. You guys see that? I love that movie. She was great. And I remember watching the movie and thinking, she's a talented little girl. I hope she doesn't end up like she's ended up. And I don't mean to pick on them, but we have living examples as we evaluate what the world has to offer versus what Jesus has to offer. You give me a person who's been a Christian for 70 years, and I will show you someone with a light in their eyes and a joy in their voice and a happiness that goes far beyond anything the world can offer or understand. Now, these next two verses are incredibly serious. Watch this. Word number 10, retribution. Verse 34. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine. And retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. This is an incredibly important verse in the history of America, and many might not even know this. The year was 1741. The place was Enfield, Connecticut. The pastor was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a soft-spoken, high-voiced man, a pastor in the day. He had poor vision, and so he wore thick spectacles, and he tended to kind of preach like this. He would read the word. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near. And the impending things are hastening upon them. That's how he preached. Jonathan Edwards. He took this verse and he preached a sermon. Some of you may even recall this used to be required study in the public schools of America to read this sermon by Jonathan Edwards that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he preached this sermon. One of the lines from the sermon, Men are walking over a fiery pit on an icy plain. They're walking over a fiery pit on an icy plain. But something happened that morning as he preached Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. People started weeping. It said that by the time he finished his sermon, people were crawling down the aisles on hands and knees, weeping out of repentance. It said halfway through the sermon, Jonathan Edwards had to ask people to quiet down because he couldn't even hear himself preach. It began what was called in America the Great Awakening. A time of spiritual revival unparalleled since then in this country. And it all came from this quiet little, you know, bottle top glass pastor. And I tell you that to tell you this. 
It is never the power of a preacher that changes lives. It is always the power of the Word of God. And all he did was stand up there and just read the Word. Preach in almost a monotone. But the Word gets in. And the Word changes lives. And the word gang is what we need. Number 11, vindication. Verse 36. For the Lord will vindicate His people. He will have compassion on His servants. When He sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, fond or free, and He will say, Where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. See now that I, I am He and there is no God beside me. It is I, watch this, here's some of that theology, heavy stuff. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who can heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to the heaven and I say as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. And I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. And my sword will devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives. From the long-haired leaders of the enemy. And I don't know if that's a verse that I would first share with someone I was trying to convert to Christ. But gang, it's here. And it is the nature and the character of God. And we cannot miss this. Larry King, just this last week, made a comment that he just doesn't like the God of the Old Testament. Well, pardon me, Larry, but the God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. We have. But He is consistent. He is solid. And there is judgment with the Lord. And there is divine retribution. And there will be vindication. We read this and we like to think of God in terms of graceful and merciful and gentle. And yet He is those things, but He is also a God of wrath and a God of vengeance. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, you fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I've told you before, Jesus preached more about hell than He did about heaven. And He did it because in His passion for people, He wanted us not to go there. He wanted an absolute avoidance of that place that was not created for us in the first place. And yet the reality is, gang, God will exact vengeance. There will be a day of vindication. And it's the sin nature in us, by the way, that brought about the death of Jesus that we might have life because there was no other way. Larry King, I've got news for you. Like him or not, God is the God is revealed in Scripture. And what we just read is as much God as the God who hung on the cross. And that wrath and that vengeance is legitimate and gain. It is time that we as Christians begin to develop, begin to pray for the installation of more holy fear. So that we see God not only as the friend, but also as the great King. As the Almighty, who He is. Isaiah understood this. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. He sees the Lord in His temple and He is blown away and He says, Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He wasn't like, hey, Jesus, what's up? Good to see you there, God. He was on His face in abject terror when He saw the Lord. 
How about the best friend that Jesus had on the face of the earth? John, the apostle. You can extrapolate from scripture. Look at John. He's always there in everything Jesus goes through. He's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. His closest friend on earth. And yet when John saw Jesus resurrected in all of his glory, Revelation 1.17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You don't fall at the feet of someone else like a dead man if they're your buddy. They're your pal. You fall down before a righteous, awesome, and holy God. And we've got to learn to see Him that way. God of grace, yes. God of wrath, yes. Because, gang, the more I understand His wrath, the bigger His grace gets. The more awesome and overwhelming is His love when I learn to fear Him in this way. Proverbs 1.17 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. Yerah Yahweh in the Hebrew. Yerah Yahweh. Fear the Lord. Yerah means moral dread. It means when you come into the presence of the Lord, you are shaking, you are fearful, and you are thanking Him with every last breath for forgiveness that we do not deserve, but that He pours out anyway. Yerah Yahweh. He is awesome, great, terrible, and wonderful. Verse 43, and with this last verse, we end the song of Moses, but listen to it, it's wonderful. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance on his adversaries, and will, and will, and will atone. He will atone for his land and his people. The last verse of this song ends with redemption. Redemption. Atonement. Numbers 35-33 tells us that blood pollutes the land and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Well, who shed the blood on the land? The Lord did. The Lord will. We're told when Jesus comes riding on his horse that he will have a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. He will come fiercely. Again, he already paid for the redemption of the land and the people by his own blood that he poured out on the cross. And so John, John says, this is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Awesome. Well, verse 44, Then Moses came and spoke all the words of his song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to your heart all the words with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you. Indeed, it is your life. And by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. Gang, we've spent three years in the Torah. Three years from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Next week will be the last Sunday study and the following Wednesday will be the last Wednesday study in Deuteronomy and we're moving on to Joshua. But understand something. Over three years of studying through, including books like Numbers and Leviticus, there has not been a single study that I would consider a waste of time. Because studying the Word is not an idle or vain thing for us. Being in the Word, saturated by the Word, will change us. So many things we do are an absolute waste of time. 
told the people first hour, I can sit down with internet backgammon and be gone for two hours. (laughs) But studying the Word of God is never a waste of your time. It's my prayer that this fellowship will learn to be saturated by His words. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this song of Moses. May we learn to sing it ourselves. May we learn to embrace the words written within. Lord, we do bow before You and we repent of our sin. We thank You that we are covered and saved and graced by the blood of Jesus. For all sin committed in the past and present and future, Lord. We praise you and thank you for this covering. But we also recognize the rebellion that goes on in our hearts. And we are so sorry. And we pray forgiveness. And as we pray this morning, if there's a one of you who have never given your life to Jesus, maybe you've never repented of the sin of your life, I beg you to do this for the Lord. To come to Him. To pray these words after me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And as I stand right now, my life is in the hands of an angry God. And I pray your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe, Jesus, you went to that cross and you died to take the punishment for my sin. I believe you rose on the third day to a new life. And I believe I can have that life if I confess your name. And so I confess Jesus today as my Lord and my Savior. And I believe in you, Lord. Save me. Walk with me. Change me. I pray in Jesus' precious name.